It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no peace. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Next fire in the fire, the system of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's getting down your neck. The border trap is some the ground with that low plane flying and up for overflow, but in the corner to put in a little secret devil, secret devil world in your own knees. See your heart, tell me the surrender in the river of the right. You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right, might feel it in British life. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom. Darn tootin'. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a tower of triumph in a tumultuous world. <laughs> I'm Joe Halton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the dynamic duo. We are the prodigious pair. We are the geezer and the gorgeous. We are just about anything you can imagine. We're here <laughs> to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors... Have you been injured in an accident with a cranky crab? Sounds like me. <laughs> Our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. I don't know. I'm becoming kind of cranky, too. We keep <laughs> losing appliances. Oh, no. Yes. For refrigerator is down. Well, first the, the air funny conditioner. Thing is, yeah. And everything survived the hurricane and now an air conditioner and a refrigerator. Oh, and have... fighting with Samsung is like banging your head up against a wall for... Yes. Do not buy a Samsung refrigerator. Well, no. Unfortunately, Samsung also owns LG. Oh. So that basically takes out about, company. I don't know, 80% of the market. Jeez Louise. KitchenAid from now on. All well, right. we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well. We'll see if they make good. Meanwhile, I have a uh, freezer that's at 72 degrees. Oh. That's not too good for me. It's actually much colder than it is usually <laughs> outside here. Yeah. <laughs> not exactly an ice box. Well, tell them our disclaimer. Yes. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care Whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to a darn thing we say. But you know what? When help's not just around the corner and somebody gets hurt or sick, the average citizen, that is you out there, might be the highest asset left to your family. And when that happens, what do you do? Well, you know what you do? You show the world you got more sense than a crate of crackers. That's what, by learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of 
trouble. That's what we're here for. And while you're at it, you know what? You should get some supplies and maybe a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits. That's store.doomandbloom.net. They will help you, I promise, handle medical issues that you'll face in any disaster. And they're designed by yours truly, an MD, and hers truly, an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, or just ask anyone who's ever bought one, and you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your survival storage. Now, not just survival storage, but for everyday use. For everyday use. I hope that nobody has to use our medical kits every day. No, no, no. You know that's not what I meant. I'm just a wise acre, aren't I? I mean, be prepared all the time, not just at the end of the world. Very wise advice. Hey, you know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us out there. So please share the news, Baby Blues. We want you to connect with us, and it is so easy. It's the easiest thing in the world. Here's a lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. We also have contact forms at doomandbloom.net and also the store.doomandbloom.net. So that's an easy form to fill out, and that will get to us. You can join our Facebook pages. We have Doom and Bloom. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and a survival group on Facebook called Survival Medicine Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, and don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. Now, we're going to be doing a giveaway actually to cap off National Preparedness Month. We're going to be doing that very, very soon. So, subscribe to our YouTube channel and maybe our. Join our Facebook survival medicine group, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and we will be giving away stuff. What stuff? Well, you never know, but it is coming from our famous warehouse of mystery. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of sounds like Halloween. (laughs) You just said that. Well, we're heading into October, but I'm doing it at the end of September, very end of September, so that we can just sort of end. National Preparedness Month with a bang. Yes, that's right. On a good note. I hope you guys have done something to make yourself more prepared this month. This is something that we need to have in everybody's mind. And I know that you guys out there are up to date with all your preps. Now, one thing I want to talk about is a new story where a gunman entered the Burnett Chapel Church of Christ in Antioch, Tennessee, near Nashville and killed a person and injured several others. That was about September 24th that that happened, that a religious service, no less. And you know what? Acts of violence and places of worship are just on the rise. They really underscore the need for a strategy that churches can implement to keep their congregants safe. And you know what? Not just churches. I mean, there's really no place where crowds gather these days that's immune to the bad intentions of some deranged, disgruntled, or politically motivated Mm -hmm. individual. Therefore, we have to have a culture of situational awareness. That should be instilled in every citizen. I'm sure you've heard us talk about that on the podcast. So you have a lot of articles on it on this topic on the website at doomandbloom.net. And situational awareness is just an attitude of calm vigilance around your Uh, about your surroundings that helps you identify what might represent a threat to your safety and and your family's safety. And this is an important attitude to have. 
in workplaces, schools, malls, gosh, just about any public place, really. But and it's, it's especially needed in religious venues. You know, the premise that a ministry is based on peace fails to take into account that there are those who consider our places of worship not to be sacred, but to be soft targets. In this era of active shooters, anti-Christian feeling that we're seeing just everywhere, pastors have to make sure their flock is safe, just like any shepherd would. Unfortunately, not all pastors prioritize church safety at the level needed in this toxic climate. In the new normal, it has just become part of the job description, and we have to take that into account. Now, in our role as preparedness activists, uh, it's our mission to help the average person promote the well-being of loved ones in disasters. And, of course, lately we've been writing about hurricanes and earthquakes, things that have, been, have happened in the recent past. The shooter events, like the one in Antioch, are also instances where mass casualties can occur. And these casualties might be minimized with a plan of action and a little organization. Now, of course, large churches yeah, you may choose to hire security professionals and install video surveillance technology. That's great. But smaller and or less affluent churches might benefit by establishing what I call a safety ministry. And that works, by the way, also in workplaces, public schools, less faith-based venues. You could call it a safety committee, whatever you would like. I would imagine a lot of schools have one of these already. But workplaces, malls, I'm not so sure. Malls have guards, I hope, and, and that should take care of the, uh, things. But there has to be some active thought put into this. Now, for churches, this group should be comprised of parishioners who have some security experience, maybe active and former law enforcement, security guards, military veterans, uh, carefully selected other people. Uh, and these folks have some specific responsibilities. They should evaluate the layout of a church and, and its grounds as well, not just the church itself, for weak spots and organize a plan of action for calling 911 and to carry out other measures when needed. Now, this goal might best be accomplished with the cooperation and assistance of local police. Of course, they can help train church members in how to identify the behavior of possible perpetrators of violence and, of course, make sure no laws are broken in the meantime. The pastoral staff, however, should be actively involved as well in this training so they can assess liability issues for their church that might arise and also to ensure the safety ministry is not perceived as some kind of goon squad by the congregation. Now, to avoid this perception, the call for volunteers for such a ministry or, or a committee like this should be made publicly and their purpose should be frankly but calmly explained so as to emphasize their benefits to all those people that are attending the church. The formation of a security group in private might otherwise tend to cause concern instead of reassurance. You want to reassurance your, reassure your people. You don't want them to wonder what's going on and why these guys are standing you know, at the side of the church, in the back of the church. Now, a simple way to avoid or abort acts of violence in places of worship, I think, is the placement of friendly but visible greeters or ushers at church entrances. Now, these people can look for anomalies. Anomalies are things like someone inappropriately dressed for the weather. Let's say somebody wants to enter your church but is wearing an overcoat in summer weather. Well, you know what? It could be because they're concealing a weapon. So having greeters outside could also make it easier to identify those people that are acting nervously or loitering in the parking lot or otherwise exhibiting some kind of suspicious behavior. 
Now, safety ministry personnel, they should have the ability to close and lock doors to prevent a gunman from entering. Now, conversely, they should also be able to open all the exits that could be used to direct congregants out of harm's way when necessary. Now, ushers can also look for packages that are left behind after a service that might hold an explosive device or might hide an explosive device. Now, in an active shooter event, there are going to be multiple casualties incurred. That's the aim of the shooter, right? And that will leave wounded and bleeding victims at the scene. Now, people that are safety ministry personnel should have training on how to stop bleeding and equipment such as first aid kits that are geared to help them accomplish this goal. Indeed, the church itself might consider arranging such training for the entire congregation. Not really a bad idea. Although geared towards security during services, a plan of action also has to be organized for other times during the week as well when not a lot's going on, and certainly for youth group meetings and other activities that are sponsored by the church. Of course, the elephant in the room is the question as to whether non-professional security personnel should be armed. Well, I can't give you the answer to that. That's a decision that has to be made taking local laws and risk levels and the wishes of the congregation into consideration. This is all very important. Now, sadly, I envision a future where safety ministries are standard operating procedure for our places of worship. And additionally, I predict that first aid kits like ours will be fixtures next to the fire extinguishers on the walls of every place where crowds gather. Now, it might be a major challenge to protect people of faith these days, but preparing for untoward events should be the responsibility of every pastor and every member of the church. With a plan of action, they'll have the best chance to keep our places of worship safe in the uncertain future. Okay, you know, last week, Amy, you did a very nice little talk on birthing supplies for Jack Spirko's uh, expert counsel at the Survival Podcast, good friend of ours. I'm actually not sure it's small, but (laughs) (laughs) it was was almost 10 minutes. (laughs) It was pretty impressive, yes, as a matter of fact. Oh, boy. And, of course, we put it in the Survival Medicine Hour as well, so our listeners can uh, know exactly what we think they should have. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about pregnancy in general and some of the issues that may occur as a result of some kind of post-apocalyptic event, some kind of major survival-type disaster. Great idea. Well, you know, it's a rare individual, I think, that doesn't have some somebody that's of reproductive age in the group of people they're going to be taken care of if some disaster occurs. A wife, a girlfriend, mother, daughter, granddaughter, you know. And the thing is, even if they're not necessarily of childbearing age at Mm -hmm. the time of the disaster, well, over the course of time, they will eventually come of reproductive age. Unless there's a group of, like, band of brothers. There's just a bunch of men. A bunch of guys. (laughs) Oh, my God. A sausage fest. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I'll tell you, if somebody's deciding to do bad things, I certainly would want a bunch of guys on my side. And uh, whatever, sausages are, sausages welcome. That's all I got to say. (laughs) I don't know know where you've gone. Somewhere dark. Bring you back to the subject at hand. Well, 
you know what? In a true survival situation, society is going to be unstable. Their organized medical care is going to be crazy. That's true. Spotty. Nuts. You know, yeah, spotty at best, uh, non-existent at worst. And if we reach a point that we lose access to modern health care, well, one of the least welcome events that might occur is one that's ordinarily considered a real blessing, and that is a pregnancy. And in a long-term survival situation, you know, the normal view is that we have the responsibility to repopulate the world, and that's wonderful, and, you know, be fruitful and multiply and all that, but this is absolutely true down the road, but first, your family has to survive. And so until things stabilize, settle down a little bit, the pregnancy and the possible complications that accompany it will be truly a burden. I mean, it won't be easy to deal with when you're trying to figure out how you're going to survive the day. So why is it important to prevent pregnancies in the early going of a societal collapse? I think I think it is. And the and the reason is very simply is that the death rate among pregnant women in a situation where there is not an existent medical system is actually pretty high. We call that rate the maternal mortality rate. And at the time of the revolution, uh, the American Revolution, it was about 2 to 4% per pregnancy. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot, perhaps, to you, but given that the average woman in the year 1800, let's say, could expect to have six, eight, ten pregnancies over, twelve pregnancies maybe, over the course of her reproductive life, the cumulative maternal mortality rate, two, even if it was just two percent per pregnancy, well, you know, that could easily approach 25 percent over the course of a woman's reproductive life. That means that she would have a one in four chance of dying due to complications of being pregnant or during the childbirth itself or even soon after a successful delivery due to things like infection. Now, if a major disaster occurs, women might face pretty unacceptable levels of risk, I think. Uh, There won't be either medicine, medical supplies in which to treat pregnancy and childbirth complications. Death could simply happen because there aren't enough fluids or medications to stop bleeding or treat infection or even just to stop people from vomiting that occurs during an early pregnancy. That is a serious risk. That's right. I mean, there are situations where no matter what you do, if you don't give them IV fluids, they're going to be so dehydrated they could pass away. I mean, it's just a really scary thing. Well, one thing that's really important, too, is that there should be antibiotics for the infections that could easily occur. A lot of preppers still haven't gotten antibiotics or other important medicines together that might prevent some of the avoidable deaths that occur after a disaster. Now, I'm not an alarmist, but I'm starting to see a, a lack of supply in some of these antibiotics on the vet sites. We're getting announcements from people who were saying that they're trying to get certain ones and they're limited supplies or they're just running out. So I don't know what's happening there, if it's on the production end or if they're just having a shortage on human antibiotics and therefore they're not being pushed over to the fish antibiotic bottling companies. But And I don't think it's regulations because those haven't changed. We've had no announcements. So I'm I'm wondering if it's a shortage just on human production of antibiotics. It could be, or perhaps sometimes the military buys up large quantities of antibiotics for their own use. And when that happens, it causes a a short-term shortage. Right. It's it's not. I'm not selling these folks. I don't make anything. Not 
a dime from any antibiotic that you guys make so or buy. So get them wherever you want, but I just think you should start accumulating a little bit at a time. Yep, I think that it's makes not a bad idea. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, some people think that the veterinary feed directive that occurred January first of this year took away the antibiotics that we talk about, but in reality, it nope. has not nope. really done that. It, if you go to the usual places that you would go for uh, fish and bird antibiotics, uh, like Thomas Labs and or FishMoxFishFlex.com, mm-hmm. you'll find that those are still available. And they're not because they're not the ones that are normally given to food producing livestock. There you go. They're usually for pet birds and pet fish, things like that. And so, therefore, they weren't included, at least at present, in that veterinary feed directive. In the future, it's hard to say. Although, with that article, I think it was the New York Times. Wasn't it the New York Times that came out and was like making a big, oh, yes. big to do about. All these preppers taking these fish antibiotics. Yes. Oh, so scary and horrible. Except the truth is they're not really taking them. They're storing them for the most part. I'm sure some people take them occasionally. But for the most part, we we all want to go see the doctor and get the appropriate diagnosis and know exactly what we should take. If you need an antibiotic at all. Or should not take, right? Because we don't want to overdose ourselves and create super bugs. Right. We're in the midst of an epidemic of antibiotic resistance. Exactly. So I will say, you know, 99.9% of all preppers that I personally have ever met, they're above board with their supplies. It's going in the storage. It's for strictly emergency use only. But they made a big deal. There is one particular antibiotic on Amazon that has a lot of reviews, and they're quite funny and Somebody started doing it funny, and other people continued, and they started talking about, well, my fish was sick, and my fish was going to miss work, so my fish decided to take X medicine, and now my fish is feeling much better. But the truth is, these reviews were probably all just made up. They probably weren't even talking about themselves. Most likely, they're they're all preppers, and they just stored them, but they told a funny story because Amazon asked for a review. Well, and of so course. now there's this whole series of hilarious stories, and right. I think people are just taking cues from each other. Like, oh well, I'll I'll tell my story. I can make up a story about a little fish who was sick. Well, you know, and I, lost in the woods and couldn't find a doctor, and well, you know I, what I mean. <laughs> and and those things are really it's true. They're very funny. The only thing I'm concerned about is that but the New York Times was like, oh, serious. They like did an expose on it, right? <laughs> Well, sure enough, I was contacted by National Public several, Radio. But several yep. different outlets, really. Yep, and uh, National Public Radio <laughs> is one, and they wanted to interview me <laughs> about it. And I just don't want a lot no, of attention placed you. on that. No, thank because you. Because the more attention it's placed on that, the more government is likely to want to get involved with it. And between you and I, that is the last thing I want. I want these things to be available, not exactly. to take in normal times, but to have them available, I know they would save some lives in a true disaster situation. It actually ended up dying down. I think that's because nobody was willing to talk to them. And, you know, once a big newspaper makes a story, all the other ones try to follow. But right. they don't get any news media. Well, it goes out of the news cycle relatively exactly. quickly. Actually, everything so goes out of the news die. cycle very quickly. Just let it die. Didn't talk about it. Didn't give any interviews. And 
and never heard another thing again. So, yay. Well, you know, we're talking about uh, pregnancy and childbirth, and tragedies relating to that certainly can occur even from infection, from bleeding, from other things like that. And they can occur at a time when you need every member of your survival group to be productive. That's right. Now, growing food, managing livestock, uh, perimeter defense, caring for children, cooking, chopping wood, carrying water. Wow, you get the idea. That's going to take the energy of everybody involved, probably more energy than they even have. And when a pregnancy goes wrong, it takes away a valuable contributor from the survival family, sometimes permanently, and it places an additional strain on resources and manpower. Now, if you don't believe it, pregnancy is awesome. Let's get procreating, you know, let's go, 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 and and repopulate society. Well, you know, before you do, let's discuss some of the reasons that women could cease to become productive group members or even lose their lives during pregnancy or childbirth. One is one that you would never think, hyperemesis gravidarum. Now, hyperemesis gravidarum simply is medical speak for excessive vomiting during pregnancy. I'm sure if you've ever met anybody that is pregnant, they'll tell you that early in the pregnancy they were nauseous. Some people had vomiting. Some people have severe vomiting. I did my grad thesis on this. Oh, tell us about it. I wrote, I think it was about 100 pages on this subject, believe it or not. Just this subject, one subject. Alone, huh? Well, I mean, it is something that almost every woman experiences, right? It was in 1994, though. Well, (laughs) believe me, if you're pregnant, if you're pregnant, whether in 1994 or 2017 or 2018, you are going to be nauseous. You know what the difference is? What? They did not have Zofran back then. Right. Zofran is a prescription medicine. Zofran came a few years later. Right. That's very helpful for nausea and vomiting. Well, of course, 100 years ago, they didn't have Zofran and they didn't have IV antibiotics or things like that or IV anti-nausea medicines, mm-hmm. I mean. And it, although most women can handle the nausea and vomiting occurs with pregnancy, a small percentage of them, of them have an exaggerated response to, uh, to these hormones that are causing them to vomit. They vomit so much, they become dehydrated. Well... If you can't maintain a reasonable oral fluid intake, well, you need to be IV hydrated. And without it, you get become severely dehydrated. That could be life-threatening. Just ask all the soldiers in the Civil War that died from dehydration just from diarrheal disease right. uh, uh, 150 years ago. Now, how many survival groups are going to have access to IV equipment and to know how to institute IV fluid therapy? Well, you know, probably not many. One of our hobbies, by the way, if you guys don't know, you probably know us pretty well by now, is collecting old medical books. And a lot of them are at least from 100 years ago and some of them from 200 years ago. And this is pretty much where we would be medically if a collapse occurs. Not exactly, and I'll tell you the the, the difference in just a very short time. But when these books, uh, the books on obstetrics, discuss hyperemesis gravidarum, excessive vomiting during pregnancy, they relate that there are death rates in the 10% to 40% range in the severe cases. That means that 10 to 40% of women died from nausea and vomiting in pregnancy back then. And that is pretty amazing. And dehydration is going to be the cause of a lot of preventable deaths in times of trouble. Some of those deaths are going to be among pregnant women. So that's one thing. And of course, then there's miscarriage. You know, the human race is not perfect. We don't always produce perfect pregnancies. As a matter of fact, about 10% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. And when a woman miscarries, 
Well, many times she's not going to pass all of the dead tissue that relates to the pregnancy. And if this tissue stays inside, it can become infected or infected or, beca- or cause excessive bleeding. And the treatment in this case would be something that we call a DNC. It stands for the words dilatation and curettage. And that's a procedure that uses scrapers called curettes to remove the retained tissue. And this will stop the bleeding and prevent infection. It is actually a relatively quick way to deal with it. But how many survival groups have the ability, have the the skill to perform this procedure, uh, the equipment needed for it, which are called curettes, uh, or have access to the antibiotics necessary to treat the infections that might occur as a result. So there's people or there are women that might wind up very, very sick as a result of simply miscarrying. Then, of course, there's hypertension. There's a condition known as pregnancy-induced hypertension. In the old days, we used to call it preeclampsia. That's still a relatively common issue and and occurs in a woman who reaches the last month or two of a pregnancy, which usually her first pregnancy, by the way. And what happens is she begins to have elevated blood pressure that cause extreme swelling. We call this type of swelling edema. And in normal pregnancy, it causes things like swollen ankles and things like that. But pregnancy-induced hypertension swells up the entire body, all the way up to the face. And if it's left untreated, this condition can lead to seizures, can become life-threatening. And off the grid, the only treatment available for it would be things like bed rest, which at best takes away a productive member of your group, and at worst might fail to prevent a worsening of the condition. It could kill people, uh, kill women. So you don't know in advance who's going to get this condition other than it's more likely in the first, in the later stages of a first pregnancy. So once a first pregnancy uh, reaches an advanced stage, that's when you start seeing it. But you don't know in advance. You can't just look at the women in your group and say, this is the person that's going to get preeclampsia or hyper uh, high, pregnancy-induced hypertension. You don't know. Now, they're not just pregnancy-related complications. There are childbirth complications. Let's say the pregnancy itself was uncomplicated. Most are, right? The birth process, while usually perfectly natural and routine, could easily present some dangers. Every childbirth, for example, involves some bleeding. It could be a little. It could be a lot. It could be a whole lot. It could be caused by tears uh, in the vagina from the passage of the infant through the vaginal canal or from a very stubborn placenta after birth. Uh, that does not expel itself spontaneously. Usually that occurs naturally without doing much of anything at all uh, within a few minutes after the uh, birth of the baby. It could even be from a uterus that is just exhausted after a long labor and doesn't contract down after the baby and placenta out. Contractions of the uterus are what stop the bleeding after a childbirth. So if, it does, if the uterus does not contract well, the bleeding can be really excessive. And when childbirth is associated with excessive, excessive bleeding, boy, and boy, I've seen it, you'd have to do certain procedures and maneuvers, and, and these are performed by trained midwives or obstetricians, like massaging the wound in a certain way that makes it contract to help stop the hemorrhage. And when hemorrhage occurs... And no, mean massaging the uterus. Massaging the uterus. There you yes. go. There you go. <laughs> Which is the site of where the placenta came off. Exactly right. Now, when hemorrhage occurs and there are no trained individuals present at the birth to know what that know what to do that bleeding may not stop before major damage has been done to the mother and that's the thing you know in in pioneer communities they had 
usually a woman that was the midwife. And somehow she passed on her knowledge to some young woman, and that continued on right. and on. They had uh, internships, just like blacksmiths did and, and farmers. Oh, and, yes, apprentices. Uh, print, yeah. Apprentices, uh, people who uh, worked uh, printing presses, newspaper people. So there were a lot of people like that. Exactly. In some cases, it's actually necessary to reach into, inside a woman's uterus and grab a placenta that won't come out on its own and remove it. And that is called a manual removal. Uh, And it's performed when part or all of the placenta is retained. Now, if a portion of the placenta doesn't come out with the rest of the placenta after birth, that tissue prevents the uterus from contracting, causes a lot of bleeding. And uterine contractions are the natural way that the placenta is expelled and, of course, and also that bleeding stops. Therefore, you can have a hemorrhage, and it's important for a person that's going to be medically responsible to have at least an idea of what a complete placenta looks like. Google it. Yeah, Google images of it. You'll see it. Uh, and you can figure out if part of it is still in the uterus. There's a maternal part that you have to look at and a fetal part. Fetal part shiny. The maternal part is sort of rough looking. The rough areas you have to take a look at it and make sure that all the placenta is there. Sometimes you can see holes where, or, or indentations where a part of a placenta stayed inside. That you need to take a look at some pictures and get an idea of what that looks like. And that needs to be done after every delivery. Is take a good look at the placenta, make sure that it all appears to be intact. It all appears to be there, because bleeding might occur later on. It may doesn't may not occur. A minute afterwards or two minutes afterwards could occur a few hours afterwards, possibly, and could be a big issue. And, of course, after that, retained tissue could become infected if it's allowed to stay in there. It's another possibly life-threatening complication. So every medic has to have the knowledge and the equipment and medications that might be needed to safely get female group members through childbirth. Now, there are also complications that occur after childbirth. We know that conditions in the delivery room after a disaster... Well, they might not be conducive to the develop. They might be conducive to the development of infections and lead to 19th century rates of maternal mortality, even if the delivery itself went without a hitch. And those kinds of infections start showing up as a foul-smelling odor from the vagina, from with fevers, and eventually these women can go into shock, set what we call septic shock, and they could die. Uh, This occurs usually in what we call the postpartum period, in the first few days uh, to maybe three or four weeks or so after the baby is born. For example, a woman who has a hemorrhage during childbirth could be so weakened by loss of blood that she's unable to return to normal activities for a very long time or may have a, a lingering infection that could take quite a long time to go away, even with the use of antibiotics. I mean, some women also undergo undergo periods of depression for a time, postpartum depression. I'm sure you've read about it. If you haven't experienced it yourself, I'm sure you've at least heard of it. And they have difficulty becoming being productive at a time when you need everybody to be a top efficiency. So there are a lot of reasons why it is a sort of a big issue and sort of important for you to make sure that you are not getting people pregnant during the early stages of a true survival situation. I don't want everybody to think that all women are going to die during or right after their pregnancy. 
off the grid, that the human race wouldn't be here if we were all that frail. Plus, we know more about cleanliness and sterility than we did in the past, so we actually are sort of ahead of the game from our 19th century ancestors. We know that there are infections, we know that bacteria cause infections, uh, and we have a good chance to prevent that by practicing clean technique and trying to sterilize instruments and you know, maybe putting gloves on, simple things like that really decrease the amount of or the percentage of infection in not only pregnancy and childbirth, but just about any medical procedure you can possibly imagine. So what I'm saying and what we're saying is only that not all survival groups have prepared, have thought about obtaining the knowledge and the resources and the ability to deal and identify with all the complications that could occur as a result of a pregnancy. And so you have to ask yourself a very simple question. If people are rioting in the streets and your garden isn't doing so well yet, do you really need to add a newborn baby to your list of responsibilities? Well, I think you know the answer to that. So what's your plan? So let that's great. Now we know that. And hopefully I've convinced you about that. So what is going to be your plan? Now, even long-term preppers haven't spent much time figuring out what birth control method they would use if a catastrophe takes them off the grid and they have multiple uh, women of reproductive age in their group. Well, have you included condoms or another birth control method in your bug out bag? The grand majority of people have not. Uh, so I'll give you kudos. I'll give you congratulations, you know, if you did, and that means you've thought about more than just beans and bullets. Now, most people don't even realize that a birth control method of some sort is a survival strategy. So if you have, well, you know what? Good for you. You are certainly ahead of the game. Now, it's important to have condoms in your storage, but condoms can break, and even if they don't, they will not last forever. With spermicide, condoms expire after about two years or so without spermicide, maybe three years, or some people say the opposite, but the truth of the matter is, is that they don't last forever. When I say they expire, I mean it in a practical sense. I mean, they're not like pills and capsules, which last long after their expiration dates in terms of potency. What happens to condoms in most cases, is they actually become brittle and become more prone, prone to break. And even diaphragms, another common method in which a woman places a rubber or latex barrier over her cervix to prevent pregnancy, require these chemical spermicides that will also become brittle over time. Now, some women use IUDs, which are called intrauterine devices, and they form blockage essentially to, uh, to a fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus. And some people, and, and that's the basic IUD, but most of these IUDs these days use hormones that just plain old prevent ovulation and wear off. They do wear off over time. They do have to be inserted into the body of the uterus, something that's best done by someone with experience to prevent injury. And if you don't do it right, you could perforate the uterine walls and cause bleeding, pain, and infection. These things also are not supposed to be in there the entire life of the person. They usually are good for a few years. The ones with hormones do wear off over time, although those are certainly superior ones and, and certainly do not allow an egg to fertilize. Now, birth control pills, they're useful, but it's difficult to get more than a few months supply at any one time. Insurance companies, you know how they are. They tightly control 
when a woman can get her next pack of pills. And even if you could get them, they would cost a bundle if you purchase them outside of insurance plans. If you have an insurance plan that gives you a great deal, well, you might get you might consider getting uh, quite a bit in advance, but the cost of stockpiling several years worth of birth control pills, that could be very difficult for the average person. They are not that cheap. They really are not. So that leaves us, what? Natural birth control methods. And some advocate the use of lemon or lime juice as a douche prior to, to intercourse. Well, uh, and why does that work? Because of the high acid content is thought to be lethal to sperm. Now, others consider using an actual slice of lemon or lime as a cap in the vagina during the act of intercourse. I don't know how effective this is. It's probably better than nothing, although I'm sure it would be irritating if it was used a lot. Um, in ancient Egypt, they actually used animal droppings to form a cap, and that is just a really bad idea, in my opinion. And, uh, and sure enough, well, there are not a lot of uh, members of the ancient Egyptian empire still around so uh, you can see that it wasn't very good now and certainly not healthy now it's important to know that these methods are not effective if they're used after the sexual act as multitudes of sperm have already entered the cervix well on their way to performing their duty be aware that some women will experience irritation that prevents pregnancy uh, trying to prevent pregnancy using these methods now, there's no commercial or even herbal contraceptive that's 100% effective and, and certainly guaranteed to not have side effects. Therefore, the best strategy is to predict as accurately as possible fertile parts of the cycle and plan to be abstinent or especially careful during the times you're most fertile. Now, to make these predictions, we have to go back to a traditional form of birth control called natural family planning, which is a modern name for the rhythm method. Well, it's it's more than just a rhythm method. It We'll talk about that in a second. Now, although not as effective as preventing in preventing pregnancy as the pill is, it can be up to 90% effective if it's implemented exactly correctly. There's no need to put hormones in your system, no side effects to speak of. So natural family planning may be a good idea. It's a time-honored method to prevent pregnancy that would fit in well with post-apocalyptic medical strategies. Now, natural family planning involves trying to figure out your fertile period, avoiding unprotected intercourse during that time, this method works best on women who have relatively regular cycles. Now, cycles are predictable if a woman releases an egg for fertilization. This is called ovulation on a regular monthly basis. Now, if you or your partner has regular 28-day menstrual cycles, say, you can bet that ovulation is occurring. A pregnancy is likely in any couple having regular sexual relationships. So likely, as a matter of fact, that 80 to 85% of couples can expect a pregnancy within the first year of a collapse if they're not careful. The egg, by the way, disintegrates in 24 to 48 hours if it's not fertilized. Now, you can tell the day that you and your partner are ovulating, or you or your partner is ovulating, by doing a little research. And that, in part, uh, involves taking your temperature with a thermometer daily for a cycle or two. There are actually special thermometers that are used for this purpose called basal body temperature thermometers, although I would think any thermometer that goes up by one-tenth of a degree increments would certainly suffice, you know, 98.1, 98.2, 98.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, make certain to take temperatures daily at the same time of the day, preferably before you get out of bed in the morning. Now, this might be a little problematic in a survival situation, so I would recommend performing this calculation prior to a disaster occurring, just like you should be doing a lot of things prior to a disaster occurring. 
Now, when you ovulate, your basal body temperature goes up by about half a degree and stays up for a period of time. Now, you should make a graph or a chart of the daily temperatures, and you may see a pattern developing every cycle. Count day number one as the first day of menstrual bleeding to start your chart. Now, once you've done this for a few cycles, you'll certainly have a good idea about when you or your partner is at risk for becoming pregnant, when they're ovulating. And a common physical symptom that goes along with this is that many people will notice some kind of one-sided discomfort in the lower abdomen when they ovulate. It's like a little bit of a sharp pain. Exactly, exactly. And so this is something that might sort of clue you in that you might be ovulating. And the basal body temperature actually on the day of ovulation has a little spike. There you go. So it goes from a lower general temperature, you'll see a little spike, and then it settles down the day after, but it settles higher than it was in the first 13 days. That's right. Is what it does if you ovulate on the 14th day. So the 15th through the 28th day is generally higher than the first 13 days. That's right. Now, that doesn't mean... It's almost like a little heartbeat. Now, that time, yes, and that time that the temperature is up is the time that you might consider avoiding having unprotected sexual intercourse from about that day or a few days even before that. Once you figure out what the day is, let's say you mentioned uh, day 14. Let's say if you have a 28-day cycle, oftentimes the temperature occurs around... Uh, the rise occurs around day 14. You might consider avoiding having sexual intercourse from about maybe day 10 to day 18 once you figure out that's the pattern. And the reason is twofold. One, you might ovulate anywhere within that period, that window, and sperm lasts longer than your fertile egg. So if you have sex two or three days before you ovulate, that sperm, or at least a few of them, the hardy individuals, might still be waiting for your egg to release. That's right. So, so there you go. So that's what that's why you need about a week or you know a good number of days that Smack form the window. In the middle. Exactly. Form the window. A window so. before and a window after. Now, exactly. if your ovulation doesn't occur at day fourteen, let's say it occurs day sixteen, just move the danger period window, over exactly to a, a little days. to day twelve to twenty, for example. And so that's something that you want to have a margin of error in determining the time period that you're eligible to get someone pregnant. Did you talk about how long sperm lasts? Uh, no, you can tell them that. Yes. Um, could be three, three days, a good yeah. three days. Pretty impressive little <laughs> rascals, aren't they? I'll say. Yeah. Yep, it's, it's absolutely true. Now, there are some other physical changes that might clue you in to the fact that ovulation is occurring. Uh, there is something called cervical mucus. Your mucus, uh, the, your cervix, which is the neck of the womb, produces mucus. And, and evaluating this mucus is going to tell you a little bit about the course of the menstrual cycle. And to use this method, it's important to understand how cervical secretions change during a typical cycle. Generally, you see little or no cervical secretions for several days after each period. Then they become sticky and thick for the next few days. And then when ovulation occurs, they change and they become clear and watery. The mucus becomes clear and watery. This change makes it easier for sperm to swim to where the egg is and fertilize it. And then it becomes thicker over time and there's less quantity uh, at the end of the period until the period begins. You can obtain a sample of cervical mucus by gently placing two gloved fingers into the vagina all the way to the cervix, the neck of the womb. It'll feel like a firm projection at the end of the vagina and examine the mucus then the 
comes out between your fingers. Cervical mucus, when you're not ovulating, is going to be thick, and you, you spread your fingers, it's going to snap. But during ovulation, spreading your fingers causes a, a watery mucus to stretch significantly before breaking. Well, if you're the medic, make sure you've washed your hands thoroughly before the exam and have an ample supply of gloves. That's very, very important. Nitrile gloves are preferable to avoid reactions in those women and medics that are allergic to latex. So performed correctly, the natural family planning method, you know what, it's an effective, it's a completely natural way to prevent pregnancy. In survival scenarios, it'll allow you to decide when things are stable enough to bring a newborn into the world. Now, I just want to say one thing about sperm. There have been cases where they found healthy sperm in the fallopian tubes up to five days. Crazy, baby. So. <laughs> Boy, there's some potent people out there. So I guess we're going to go from the three and we're going to move it up to the three to five days because <laughs> in the rare case, yeah. and they, by the way, they do start dying pretty much immediately, but um, anyway. Just some, some individuals. Get, get, I give it the five days just in case. <laughs> we'll be talking about labor and delivery next week, so a lot of interesting information that's coming up there. We're going to also end our show with a little talk about oral rehydration salts. Uh, Alan from Maine, who's a listener of Jack Spirico's Survival Podcast and our, our podcast as well, asked about a trip he's taking to Costa Rica and about rehydration salts that he's taking with him in case of dehydration. And so here is our answer to Alan from Maine. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, and co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Help is Not on the Way. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Alan from Maine, who writes, I recently bought trioral oral dehydration salts, uh, the new uh, World Health Organization formula on Amazon, and I'm curious as to how many and how frequently I should use them. The instructions say to mix one packet with one liter of water. Servings are as directed by a doctor. We are traveling to Costa Rica in October for my son's wedding. I've been in contact with our physician's office who provides staff that specialize in travel medicine. My wife and I had the first hepatitis shot and we'll be going for the booster soon. They'll prescribe us anti-malarial medicine if necessary, along with anti-diarrhea medicine and other vaccines they feel are appropriate for the time. I purchased the oral rehydration salts thinking that the medicine is only half the treatment. If I lose the electrolytes, then I need to replace them. Is it safe to consume one liter at a time? I've already done it. I'm still able to email my question. But how often can I do that before I have an adverse reaction? What symptoms should I be aware of that would signal excess consumption? In this context, do you have any other recommendations for traveling to Central America, as this is our first time in the area? Thank you for your help. Alan, you're wise to think about the effects of dehydration and survival in other austere settings, as I believe it will be the cause of many otherwise preventable deaths if the you-know-what hits the fan. This also goes for people that travel to underdeveloped countries. Symptoms of dehydration include thirst, decreased urine volume, urine that's darker than usual, fatigue, lack of tears when crying in infants, uh, headache, dry mouth and skin, and dizziness when standing due to something called orthostatic hypotension. Now, normally, blood pressure rises when you stand up, but in dehydrated individuals, it drops. 
Now, if you bring a blood pressure cuff and stethoscope, you can stay on top of it. You can identify worse cases of dehydration because these people become delirious, they lose coordination, and eventually organs fail, which lead to death. I doubt you'll let it get that far. Try oral dehydration salts, or rehydration salts actually, and other brands are meant to replace just exactly what you have lost through dehydration. Now, how much you should use would depend on the level of dehydration. The total body water content you've lost determines the amount you need to replace it. It's important to realize that hydration itself doesn't eliminate diarrhea, so it's important to keep pushing fluids until it subsides. Now, standard commercially made rehydration salts shouldn't cause you to develop any major medical issues, especially if you drink them in frequent small amounts. If there's vomiting, rest for about 10 minutes before trying to drink again. Cases of over-rehydration are very rare, usually seen in athletes who believe that being overhydrated improves performance, which is a controversial point of view at best. Rehydration is generally adequate when the person no longer feels thirsty and has more urine output. A rough guide for the amount of oral rehydration solution needed in the first four to six hours of treatment for most cases would be, say, two to four liters as in an, in an adult, less for children. Now, once urine output is back to normal, you're good. Now, it's unlikely you'll be required to take anti-malarial medicine if you're going to Costa Rica. Costa Rica is not considered as having a major problem with it at this time by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Despite this, it's important to use mosquito repellent while you're there and to not try to become pregnant due to the continued existence of Zika virus in the area. I don't know how long you'll be there. You're wise to get the hepatitis vaccine, and some physicians will even recommend the vaccine for typhoid fever as well. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. That's it for this week, boys and girls. Thanks so much for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour. We'll be back next week. Same time, same station. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.